HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by 360 Cookware. Their stainless steel cookware uses vapor technology to cook better tasting, more nutritional food. To learn more and receive 20% off, click their logo on our website, heritageradionetwork.org. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Just mention Tuscan cuisine or the benefits of a Mediterranean diet to people, and oh, they all know about it, uh, even if they've never traveled to the Mediterranean. How do they know about it? We're going to find out from the voice of Tuscan cuisine and the Mediterranean diet today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And today, my guest is Nancy Harmon Jenkins. And Nancy is indeed, I want to say, the the voice of Tuscan cuisine in a certain way, or, or Italian cuisine, or Mediterranean cuisine. Nancy is an authority, in fact, on Mediterranean cuisines. And you know, it, it's true that Today, everyone seems to know about Tuscan cuisine or Mediterranean cuisine in it, but it always wasn't that way. People really didn't have much access to, unless they traveled, to writings of, of the cuisine, and Nancy changed all that. As I said, she is an authority on Mediterranean cuisines, mm-hmm. on the Mediterranean diet, and its consequences for good health. She's an expert on virgin olive oil and, to her own surprise, ancient Egyptian maritime technology. Oh, I, want, I want to hear about that one. She's written countless articles for all the food magazines and produced programs and videos on camera and off. And she was a staff writer for the New York Times and is now a regular contributor as well to Zester Daily. Okay, I'm running out of breath. She's <laughs> published many cookbooks, um, including the award-winning The Mediterranean Diet Cookbook. And, Nancy, two of my favorites I have to plug in there, The Flavors of Puglia and Cucina del Sole. I, have to, those, I, I love The Flavors of Puglia. I really do love. 
uh, um, and the Cucina del Sole, the cuisines of southern Italy. And she's got a new book coming out soon, which we're going to hear about on olive oil. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you so much. It's fun to be here. Well, you know, you have often said that that you, if you've learned anything, it's your these are your words. If you've learned anything from a fortunate life, it's that the quickest route inside another culture is through food. It's anthropology, actually. Um, and you say, with the very important difference, anthropology with the difference that you can taste the culture on your tongue and feel it between your hands. Tell me, tell me about that. Tell me how, what your whole feeling is on learning culture through food. Well, I've always felt, um, I'm, I'm, I'm famous for saying that all of human history is about guaranteeing the food supply. I think that we, I, I mean, if you really think about it, even our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are about oil. I believe that. And uh, they're about oil because oil is such an important part of guaranteeing our food supply. I think that uh, the way people cook, the way people, let's start from the beginning, the foods that people plant, the seeds people plant in the soil, the way they raise them, the way they raise their animals, the way they harvest them and prepare them and serve them and share them these are all significant and they change from one culture to another you know one culture uh, in India for instance or in certain parts of the Middle East we eat sitting down on the floor with a clean mat spread mm-hmm. in front of us in other cultures we eat sitting at a table uh, in some cultures, even they eat standing up, like here in New York. Oh, yeah. A lot of people you see eat, eating out, walking along the street and munching on something. It's the only kind of meal they ever have. So all of these are part of the pattern that changes from one culture to another. And when I travel, and I've done a lot of traveling in my life, one of the first things I like to do is visit markets. And one of the second things I like to do is go to a restaurant, usually a fairly humble restaurant, and just see what people are eating. And see how they interact with each other as they eat. Well, now you you say you travel a lot, and you and you have become, you know, and you did become an expert on Mediterranean cuisine, where you actually lived abroad for many years mm-hmm. and in many different areas. Tell me about that. Well, I was married for a long time to a foreign correspondent, a journalist, and so we lived in we lived in Paris, we lived in Madrid, we lived in Beirut, which was a wonderful place to live. Um, we had a house in Cyprus for a long time, and then we ended up in Rome in the 1970s, and we lived there, and at about the same time, we had bought a house in Tuscany, an old tumble-down farmhouse, you know, the usual kind of... The dr- you mean story. the dream that yes, we all exactly, have. Yes, right? exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so um, since I departed from Mr. Jenkins many, many years ago, um, I have continued to go back to Tuscany, to that farmhouse every year, for about six months out of the year. So I've, and, and, and during that time, too, I've traveled a lot because I, in my writing, I feel it's really important to get out and go and see how they're making olive oil in Tunisia or uh, what's happening in the rice, uh, rice paddies of, of southern, southeastern Spain, um, that sort of thing. And, and, of course, it's an excuse for me to get out and see people and meet people and yeah, absolutely. taste new things, too. <laughs> now, I, I agree with you. I think, I think that getting through getting into culture through food i mean everyone has to eat and right. it is part of everyone's daily practice mm-hmm. i mean you learn so much um what if you could say there have been any major changes let's say in the from your early times discovering in the late 60s through you know today 
Anything in particular you notice that has changed? Oh, dramatic changes in the ways people eat and and dramatic changes in the kinds of things that they eat because there's so much more um, industrially produced, what we call processed food available. Um, I think if you go to France, if you haven't been in France in 20 years and you go today, you will be astonished at the numbers of McDonald's there are. There is not a small town in France that doesn't have a McDonald's on the outskirts. Oh, too bad. Yeah, it is too bad. It's terrible, I think. But um, nothing against McDonald's. Well, yeah, I got a lot against McDonald's. But I'm, I'm not <laughs> another show. That's that. another yeah, topic. <laughs> exactly. Um, but that's not the, it's not just that a lot of French people are eating at McDonald's, but a lot of French people and Italian people and Greeks and Spaniards and so forth are eating um Food that's been prepared for them by multinationals, and uh, it's changing the way people eat. The other thing is, and this is a very interesting kind of anthropological phenomenon, a lot more meat is being consumed, for instance, in Greece Hmm. than when they first did the Mediterranean diet studies in the early 1950s, a lot more meat. And that changes people's health profiles, too. Uh, And it also changes the economy. But I don't know what's happening in Greece right now because... I haven't been there since um, since this terrible economic collapse right, that they suffered. Right. But uh, I imagine a lot of people have turned away from meat and back to beans, and their health will show it. Um, but apart from that, uh, people travel a lot more than they did. When I lived in Spain in the 1960s, Spaniards could not travel outside the country because they could take so little money mm-hmm. outside that if they did travel, they had to have relatives or friends or somebody from whom they could borrow a bag money when they got outside there. So there wasn't a sense in Spain of what was going on in the rest of Europe or even the rest of the world. That's changed completely now. Right, interesting. I, I, do, I, I do see that. I think that the international travel and, and certainly people's desires for things that now they see on this rapid communication and, yeah. and The desire for novelty, which yes. is such an... Imp- it's such an incredible thing when you think about it. I've been reading um, Lisa... Hanke's book, Exotic Appetites, Mm. getting ready for this conference that's coming up, which we'll talk about later. Um, But she talks a lot about the desire for novelty always in terms of food. And that's something that um, didn't exist before. And it still doesn't really exist in Italy. In Italy, people are very happy to go on eating the same thing that their parents and their grandparents ate. Right. But try to find one of those old little trotterias around oh. and it's it's practically impossible everything's new cuisine and, well you know, when so. we find one of those we tend to keep it very we don't quiet. tell people yeah. right <laughs> keep it there's yourself. one in my tuscan hometown that my children swear they will divorce me if i ever write about this place <laughs> yeah you just have to learn the food and cook it yourself yeah. and certainly you have given us all the tools to do so um and learn about the different the different regions and of course there are a lot of uh, wonderful Italian cookbook writers out there as well. Oh, there but, are indeed. Um, but I mean, but you really expounded upon the elements of the Mediterranean diet, which is something that I, I think is very well. Important. It's that, and it's also um, I like to think that when I I write a cookbook, and you can see that I'm doing that in a little quotation books, marks yeah. with their fingers. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, when I write a cookbook, I'm not just writing. You mean a, a book with recipes? <laughs> yes, it is indeed that. It's a book with recipes. It's a book about a place, and it has recipes with it. I would. Always defer to Marcella Hazan of course, on any yes. question of Italian cuisine at all because she is the, I don't want to say she's the mistress of it, she is the master of it, clear mm-hmm. and simple. But in terms of, for instance, you mentioned um, Cucina del Sole. Uh, that book required a lot of travel in southern Italy and a lot of drawing on memories of travel in southern Italy 
to come up with that sense of how how integral these recipes are to the culture and the geography and the history that they come out of. That's right. And people have to realize that the it's a whole that country has it's the cuisines are very different. Oh, they are indeed. I mean, Italy, you know, if you live there for a very short time as you've done that um uh, you can go from one region to another or even from one town to another and find that the the ways people cook and even the foods that they eat differ enormously. Right. I mean, people think of, okay, spaghetti with tomato sauce and, yeah. <laughs> you know, dispel all those myths. Yes. I think people are a little more educated today. Oh, I think so, but, yeah. Yes. Uh, I think it's, it's, but it's interesting, you know, you can mention certain parts of Italy and people don't know anything about them. Molise, for instance, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting uh, place and, and a place where there's some great olive oil being made. Uh, I was stunned to discover that there are more Molisani in Montreal than there are in the whole region of Molise. Interesting. Yeah, and I wonder if it's influencing um, Franco cuisine at all in Montreal. Huh. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm certainly there. You have probably a lot of good Italian restaurants. Yeah. So I'll go check it out yeah. right, and find out. Um, of, and it's not fair to say, but I mean, I, I know that um, olive oil is, is a particular passion of yours. Yeah. Out of the Mediterranean cuisines, um, Obviously, it's heavy in olive oil. As you said, vegetables, mm-hmm, olive oil. Mm-hmm. The meat kind of replaced the olive oil for a while there. But yeah. um, any cuisine that calls to you more than another and why um, throughout the whole Mediterranean region? Well, I would say Italian calls me just because I spend so much time mm. there. And I also, you know, I'm doing tours now. Not tours. Well, I was exactly. going to mention that. Second yeah. half of the show will expound okay. on All that. All right, good. <laughs> but uh, that, that, that fixes me very much in Tuscany. I love Tuscan food, but there's so much more in Italy than there. I would love to be able to afford to spend six months in Greece traveling around with somebody like Diane Kochilas or Aglaia mm-hmm. Cremesi, tasting all the different cuisines that there are there. Um, and that is a, a country that um, uses far more olive oil per capita than any other country in the world. And it shows up in the cuisine. Obviously, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, I've spent a lot of time on the island of Crete, which I think is fantastic, but I'd love to explore more of the back country. And the other place that always calls me is Lebanon. I oh, think oh, yeah. I think the food of Lebanon is some of the most exciting food in the world. It's it's Yes, it's Middle Eastern food. You can find very similar food in Palestine, in Jordan, in Syria, if you could ever go to Syria again. Right. Um, but the Lebanese, you know, they've been very sophisticated people since about the 7th century B.C., and uh, they know how to produce a restaurant cuisine. They know how to produce wonderful vegetables in markets. They just they have a gift for cooking that I would, um, I think I, I would pair it with the gift that Italians have. There's a kind of uh, food is so deeply integral to that culture that they've they've developed an entire repertoire of just delicious ways to um, to taste it, to serve it, to cook it. And so oh, forth. I, I'm the fla- I can draw up some of the images yeah, of flavors yeah. right now. And, and well, those uh, the the way they use fresh herbs, for instance, especially that something like mint 
or uh, or savory, wild thyme, um, even just parsley. Parsley tastes better in, in from a market in Beirut than it does anywhere else. I mean, in the you world. Can, and, and they make a whole salad of just yes, the parsley, indeed. which is you yeah. know you yeah. wouldn't think yeah. to do it. You yeah. know, here so yeah, much. and they call it tabbouleh, and we right. what we call tabbouleh is this <laughs> more wheat berries than anything yes, else. Yes, exactly. Right? <laughs> um, action. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I was hearing a lot. A young friend of mine is uh, she represents some chefs uh in israel and they are and the israeli cuisine is just uh, she's wild about what's happening there and that it, it is it's all the influences of the mediterranean absolutely that you know cuisines. it's one of those um authenticity questions that uh we have to deal with on Saturday at the cookbook. That's right. Conference. Whose food is it? Right? Yeah, whose yeah. food is it anyway? And that's a really, um, it's a very uh, controversial area, especially as far as things like like falafel and tabbouleh yes. and hummus are concerned. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Well, hold that thought because yeah. I want to talk more about that when we come back after okay. a short break. Everything she touches turns to gold by the four Lincolns on the Heritage Radio Network dot O-R-G. Walking home alone, so enlightened, no one's listening. Everything she touches turns to gold, turns to gold, turns to gold. And everything she touches turns to gold, she's all alone, she turns to gold. Today's program has been brought to you by AmeriCraft. AmeriCraft and 360 Cookware are proud sponsors of HeritageRadioNetwork.org. AmeriCraft is an American company, and like Heritage Radio Network, they provide the best. Their 360 Cookware is made of the highest quality ingredients, like United States Steel. It is made in the greenest cookware manufacturing plant in the world. AmeriCraft makes great cookware and is focused on improvement. 360 Cookware is their exclusive line. It's a contemporary line of cookware and bakeware intended to let you, the Heritage Radio Network listeners, have a unique cooking experience. Its vapor seal allows food to be cooked in its natural juices, preserving all of the vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients without added water, oils, or fats. 360 Cookware invites you to learn more about how this process works on their website, www.360cookware.com. Every Wednesday at noon, Dorothy Can Hamilton, founder and CEO of the International Culinary Center, interviews the top chefs in the world on Chef Story. Hear from chefs like Christina Tosi. I'm going to be the best pastry cook this restaurant's ever seen. Francis Malman. Cooking with fires, it's very feminine, it's very fragile. And Jacques Pepin. I was invited to work at the White House for John Kennedy. Learn how the greats become great. Every Wednesday at 12 p.m. on Chef Story heritageradionetwork.org Hi and welcome back to A Taste of the Past. I'm talking with Nancy Harmon Jenkins 
And um, Nancy is going to be participating in an upcoming conference called the Cookbook Conference um, next week in New York City. And actually, Heritage Radio Network is the official media partner, so we're going to be there interviewing a lot of the the um, attendees and the and the and the participants in that conference. And Nancy, the workshop that you are participating in, I think, is is very interesting, called Whose Food Is It Anyway? We mm-hmm. mentioned that right before yeah. the break. Because, I mean, the, we are so multicultural now, and you were just saying, especially even throughout the middle, the you know, the Mediterranean area, the cuisines are kind of melding together, right. and one country making another country's food. Um, so whose food is it? Is it, and, and you know, is it okay for... An American to write a book about uh, pasta. Is it okay for uh, an Israeli to write about hummus? Is it okay for uh, you mentioned falafel? Um, are we? Is it okay to write about other cultures' food and not be uh, from that culture? Uh, it's a very tricky question. I think I would say right off the top of my head, yes, of course it is. If you spend a lot of time in that culture, I mean, I was, I'm not, you can tell by looking at me, I am no way Italian. I don't think that if you went back all 13 generations of us, you'd find a drop of Italian. <laughs> Nor I, yeah. right. I carry a name, but. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but I write about Italian food and I write about the food of the Mediterranean. I spent a lot of time there. Uh, I've studied it. I've cooked it. I've gone to markets. I've talked with cooks. I've been in kitchens. I've done all of my my homework for that. Uh, that's fine. I think uh, just you know another person who um, always comes to mind with that is Naomi Dugard, whose mm-hmm. book on Burma is quite fabulous, and she uh, has done the same thing in Southeast Asia. She has traveled and tasted and cooked and interviewed and talked with and uh, I don't know maybe even slept with cooks all <laughs> over the the region. Um, what I resent more than anything else are people who go to a place and spend three weeks and grab a bunch of recipes and come home and either write about it or set themselves up as an, an authority. Ita- yes, yeah. mm-hmm. an Italian cook, a Turkish cook, you know, that sort of thing. I find that to me is false. And I wonder sometimes how those people can go to sleep at night thinking about what they're doing. Uh, the other side of that that's almost more interesting is people who take the ideas of a culture and translate them in some way into their own culture. And I'm racking my brain right now trying to come up with an example of someone who does that. But um, I think uh, there are several well-known chefs in New York. There's one who, who... I wish I could give you his name, but I can't. He's recently come to Mexican cuisine. He's a very well-known chef, and he married a Mexican woman. Oh, I know, and I can't remember his name either. But okay. and his and and his his restaurant has gotten wonderful reviews. Right, okay. exactly. It'll come to yeah. me. All right. So he's somebody who's uh, very frank about what he's doing. I've gone to Mexico. I've tasted the food. I've loved it. I've brought back these ideas, and I'm putting them on my menu. My in interpretation. Way. Yes, on my exactly, menu. Right. exactly. But for him to go and um, if if he had done this and he didn't, if he had simply gone to Mexico to Oaxaca, say, and spent three weeks there and come back with a bunch of recipes, um, and then presented them as not as his interpretation but as genuine Mexican food that's false that's wrong Mm -hmm. Uh, and I feel that way perhaps more about food writers even than I do about chefs because chefs are always if they're any good they're always experimenting with things you know and you have to sometimes um, not to put all the blame on the chefs you have to blame the media because they they want to pigeonhole 
they want to pigeonhole yeah. the cuisine. They yeah. want to pigeonhole the restaurant or put a name on a brand on it, you know. And and then you find the the chef has to to make excuses and say, but mm-hmm. but, but but no, this is my interpretation. Right. This is yeah. a you know, influence. I think one of the worst things, and I'm going to shock everybody who hears me when I say this, but I think one of the worst things that's happened to food media in the last 15 years has been the the uh, entrance of the blogger. Oh. <laughs> uh, the bloggers really have created more confusion. They have proliferated more misinformation. They are part of this whole um, search for the novel, for the new. Every day, I've got to have something new to put up on my blog. If I don't have a picture of my food that I right. ate and exactly. posted. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's, it's getting a little tiresome. And I hope that um, that they all realize sooner or later that they're not going to make a living doing this and they'd better drop out. But the other part of that, of course, is the um, the cookbook publishers who rush after these bloggers. You know, some bloggers got 80,000 people following them and the publisher wants to do their book well you mentioned something interesting and and bloggers out there i do love reading some of your stuff some of it i mean some of it yeah and and then and then i say who has the time to read all of this stuff out there and who has the time to be you know searching around for the right but things come across my computer screen that i am so happy Mm -hmm, to have mm -hmm. bumped into on a blog and so i'm some of them are quite good really but yes and you just mentioned the publishers it's gotten to the point today that it, it becomes the platform for being accepted by a publisher. You have to have a blog. You have to tweet a lot. You have to have, you know, all 1,500 Facebook followers. I mean, mm. it's, it becomes, you know, a necessity. I don't have it. time to do that. I don't have time to do that and do the kind of research that's necessary and the kind of writing. Writing takes a lot of time. You don't want to put just anything down there. No, it's lasting. <laughs> yeah, I want I want my words to be engraved in stone and last for all eternity, obviously. Um, but if you're a serious writer, and, you know, there are uh, food writers who are deeply serious, mm-hmm. um, then you're wasting your time if you're blogging and tweeting and... And all of that. You I cannot have energy to put into no, the research don't. and the writing. And, of, and of, of it trivializes books. what you're doing, yeah, too, yeah. because the business of tweeting always has to be such a brief mention. And pithy. Yes, exactly. So pithy. And, uh, well, let's get back to let's 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 go back to that. You know, the time and, and serious writing the book, the um, the Mediterranean, uh, the essential, the essential Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that you said um was a book that you loved and it was your favorite book. It is. And it's my favorite book of all the books that I've written. I think that's my favorite. And it is, you say some people are frustrated with it because it's not really a cookbook per se as we know cookbooks. No, it's not. And it probably, I would guess that it probably has 150 recipes in it all told, but they're divided up into subject matter and they're not divided. You don't go there and look for, oh, an appetizer to serve at your next dinner party or or, on the contrary, a vegetable to get into your kids' stomachs at dinner tonight. Um, you go there to read about olive oil, or there's a chapter on wheat as bread, and there's another chapter on wheat as pasta. Um, there's a chapter on the family pig, which is such an important animal throughout the Mediterranean. Um, the, these chapters deal with um, a, a, a product, a product in the sense of something that is produced, not, I mean, a product of industry, mm-hmm. and uh, and then talks about where it comes from, why it's good, how it can evolve in your hands, in your kitchen, into something even better, and um, and there's a lot of culinary history in there as well. 
And that and and that is, I mean, you really are exploring what we had talked about from the top. You know, yeah. the, the whole the whole culture of the Mediterranean. Right, diet. exactly. So that if I'm talking about um, about the family pig, for instance, I have to start off by discussing the fact that one half of the Mediterranean loves pigs. That's the Christian half, and the other half, the Muslim and Jewish half, loathes them and. They are unclean. They're reprehensible. So you have to deal with that dichotomy right from the very beginning. And then I get to sing the virtues of pork. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, and you mentioned, of course, then you had to talk a chapter on olive oil. Let's talk about olive oil. You have a new book. You've just done a lot of research um, on olive oil. Let's talk about that. What's Tell me about the book that's coming up. Well, the book, unfortunately, has no title so far. My publisher and my agent wanted to call it Virgin Territory, and I thought that sounded cute and smirky, and I didn't want to call it that. I wanted to call it the Olive Oil Bible, but I don't think it's as encompassing as the Bible is, so we still haven't decided on a title. But it's a book about olive oil, and it grew out of my perception that, uh, you know, Tom Mueller wrote a wonderful book about olive oil a couple of years ago that was all about fraudulent oil Mm -hmm. and the fact that so much of the oil that we think is extra virgin actually isn't. But he also wrote in the book about good olive oil. Unfortunately, the message that people took away was that all olive oil is fraudulent, and we have to stay away from it. Right. And I wanted to encourage people to go back to this magnificent ingredient and just understand what it is and understand what quality is in olive oil and how you can train yourself to to taste that quality and how you can also train yourself to identify it when you go into a, a shop or a market. Although I must say... I'm actually getting to the point where I think the best way to buy olive oil in this country is probably online rather than in a shop. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, I haven't said that in the book, but I'm I'm thinking about adding that to it. I mean, it it is. I mean, if anyone has ever traveled and and had the privilege of of going to a pressing of oil, it's just, it will forever change you. Yeah, absolutely, because you begin to understand what it is that makes it great and where the, um, what they would call uh, at USDA, the HACCP points are, the hazardous points that will determine whether the olive oil becomes good or bad Mm -hmm. in the end. And the organoleptic Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 which is very important. Well, I've been doing olive oil tastings. I did one yesterday at my daughter's restaurant for her staff. And I brought out a bottle of, I probably shouldn't mention the name of it, and uh, one of her lead You can mention said, the name. We're not a commercial. It's okay. All right. Well, we can mention anything. <laughs> Colavita olive oil. And one of her staff said, oh, that's my favorite olive oil. I always buy it. I said, ah, oh, you do, do mm-hmm. you? So I set them up with a tasting. We had our own olive oil from Tevedina because we make olive oil. We have 150 olive oils. At your, at the, at yeah. your mm-hmm. villa in uh, at your Tuscan and house. And we yes. had a wonderful Piano Grillo oil from Sicily. And we had an oil, a, a Spanish oil that I had actually bought at Fairway that was unfortunately, it was a year or two out of date, mm. uh, shouldn't have been sold at the price it was sold at. And then we had a couple of the Cola Vita and another oil that I had just picked up off a supermarket shelf. So I lined these up on the bar at Porcena and we started tasting through it. And by the time we got to the Cola Vita, he understood why. why it should not yeah, be his favorite. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. Um, you yes, and you your um, olive oil tastings then are 
part of what I wanted to talk about, and those are your trips. You oh, you yeah. do a travel a, a travel and tasting trip along with your daughter Sarah Jenkins, who's a, a chef and restaurateur here in New York City, Porcena and Parquetta. Um, you. Uh, I have a couple trips coming up in the spring. We do indeed. We have and two. You're com- and, the, and the little jaunt is called Amarolio. Yes. <laughs> Why don't you make that the name of the book? Amarolio. You know, that's not a bad idea, actually. Yeah. That's a wonderful idea, Linda. Thank you. You're welcome. I have lunch with my agent tomorrow. I will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Amarolio, which means yeah. I love oil. Right? Exactly. Right? Yeah. 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 That's great. Well, tell us about the, the trips that you that Well, you these are, the, I call them trips. Actually, we go to one place called Villa Campestri, a beautiful, beautiful, um, they call it an olive oil resort, just north of Florence in the hills of the Mugello Valley. And we stay there for five days, six nights, and we we just taste olive oil. We cook with olive oil. We go out to markets and buy. We go to other restaurants. We visit a wine producer and a cheese producer. But most of the focus is on olive oil. And again, determining quality. I have a wonderful uh, young woman who's the daughter of this, um, the people who own Villa Campestri, and she has a graduate degree in ag- agronomics. And mm. she's a magnificent taster. So we taste with Gemma. And we discover what the major defects are in olive oil and how to identify them. And so once you've done this course, you come away from it with a really strong sense of what quality means. I had a chef there last year in November who told me she went home and threw out all the olive oil in her restaurant kitchen and started over again from scratch. Oh my goodness. In March we have a wonderful chef from Montreal, I mentioned Montreal earlier, uh, named Michele Forgione. He's coming to be the guest chef. And then in April we have my daughter Sarah coming to be the guest chef. And then we'll do two more of these in the autumn when we're actually harvesting olives and making oil. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, you can find out information about um, Nancy's trips on her website, nancyharmanjenkins.com. We'll have that posted on our Good. on our uh, web page. The, the other place where you can find out a lot about it is at Food 52. Food 52. They yeah. were offering uh, you know, the... Uh, the slots there, for yeah. so that, yeah. and they were giving you a lot of good press on that. Nancy, it has been truly a pleasure, and Thank you. I think there's always so much to learn from you. I love reading your your articles, and and you always tend to get into the the, the heart of the matter and the nitty gritty, whether everyone wants to you know face the truth or not but you do get to the truth of the matter and and i thank you for all your writing and and truly um sharing your knowledge with us and i look forward to hearing more of your comments soon and the book whatever it shall be called well, on exactly. olive oil. Yes. <laughs> thank you and yeah. thanks for listening i'm linda palaccio you've been listening to a taste of the past Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.